When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon host of the Asian Review of Books podcast done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. In 2010, Ping'an took over Shenzhen Development Bank, ending an experiment that had never been tried before and not been tried since, a foreign company owning and managing a Chinese bank. Newbridge Capital, a private equity firm, shocked the financial world when it agreed to take over the bank five years earlier and successfully made it a pioneer in the industry. Wei Jen Shan, then a partner in Newbridge Capital, writes about the whole escapade in his third book, Money Machine, a trailblazing American venture in China, from when the deal first started through its many reforms to Newbridge's final exit. Wei Jen Shan is co-founder and executive chairman at PAG, a leading private equity firm in Asia. Prior to his career in private equity, Shan was at different times a managing director at J.P. Morgan and a professor at the Wharton School of University of Pennsylvania. He is also the author of Out of the Gobi, My Story of China and America, and Money Games, the inside story of how American dealmakers saved Korea's most iconic bank. Today, Shan and I talk about the trailblazing deal to take over Shenzhen Development Bank, how important that deal was in the story of China's development, and perhaps whether private equity gets too much of a bad rap today. So, Shan, you know, thank you for coming on the show. Given that many of our readers might not be um, might not be experts in the financial sector, I want to start with a basic question. What exactly is a private equity firm like Newbridge Capital trying to do when it takes over a company? Well, thank you very much, Nicholas, for that very kind introduction. It's a great pleasure to talk with you today. Private equity, in essence, is a form of asset management. And let me just describe to you how we work. The money that we invest, private equity is investment form, and the money comes from mostly institutional investors, such as state pension funds, such as sovereign wealth funds, wealthy individuals, or college and university endowments. And they entrust their money with private equity investors or managers, and then we invest the money on their behalf. The reason that private equity is called private equity is because typically, the businesses in which we make investments or the targets of our acquisition are most likely private companies, not public companies. Uh, 
See, if you compare ourselves with hedge funds, which also collect capital from individuals and institutions to make investments, but they typically buy public equity, that is stocks in the stock market or bonds in the bond market. And that type of investment is referred to as public equity investing. Private equity, as implied by the name, focuses mostly on private companies. So private equity has also different styles of investing. There's venture capital, which makes investments in startup companies and whatnot. And there's growth capital, which makes investments in growing companies, not necessarily startups, more tested, more mature companies, but taking, let's say, minority positions and giving capital to the companies to help them grow their business. And then there is the so-called buyout business. Uh, a, a good example of a buyout, and probably one of the first buyout deals in the industry, which really started private equity industry, was the 1988 acquisition of RGR Nabisco by KKR, which was a $25 billion deal. In that case, the KKR partners bought 100% of the target company, RGR Nabisco. There was a book written about it by the name of Barbarians at the Gate. Henry Kravitz is a partner of KKR. Neil Kravitz is one of the case. He likes to say, very often I heard him saying, that any idiot can buy a company. You just have to pay a higher price. That's my interpretation of what he said about any idiot can buy a company. And then he says, what really matters is what happens to the business after you have acquired it. And that's what private equity is all about. And that is not only to buy the company, but to somehow create value from the business that you buy. And then eventually you will have to exit from your investment and giving the money back, whatever you realize, to your investors, who we call limited partners. We, as private equity investors, are generally referred to as general partners and our investors are limited partners. So you ask the question about what we do after we make the investment, such as having bought control of Shenzhen Development Bank, uh, a net national bank in China. And we, Newbridge Capital, was an American private equity firm affiliated with TPG. And later we renamed the company, Newbridge Capital, to TPG Asia. After we bought the company, we had to improve its operation, and that's how we create value. And in this particular case, Shenzhen Development Bank, it was a very troubled institution, financial institution. It was very broken. It was technically insolvent. And there were a lot of bad loans made by this bank, representing a very large percentage of the total loan book of this bank, as I described in the book, Money Gay, Money Machine. And uh, the capital ratio was very low. So the question was how we would improve the operation of this bank. How do we get rid of all the bad loans? 
how do we make it profitable? How do we install a risk management system in order to prevent bad loans from being created again? And in the process of a number of years, we reappointed or we appointed a new management team. We revamped the entire board. We took over control and we completely restructured the bank. And that's how we created value. And let me just give you an example to end my long-winded answer to this particular question. When we took over the bank at the end of 2004, beginning of 2005, the profitability of this bank was zero. There was some nominal profit, but it shouldn't have been there because the bank had under provision against its bad loans, fully provisioned. The bank had negative capital and no profitability. Five years later, the profit of this company per year reached about a billion dollars. And the capital ratio was increased from negative to more than 10%. And then we, of course, exited from this investment at an enormous profit, but not because we bought cheaply and sold more dearly, but because we improved the operation of the bank. And that's typically how private equity creates value and make money for its investors. So while we're here to talk about Money Machine, I do want to take the opportunity to ask about your first two books, um, first of which was Out of the Gobi. Um, I know it's going to be hard to summarize your entire background in, in one short answer. Um, but I guess, how did you go from growing up in communist China to becoming a managing partner at Newbridge? Well, <laughs> I, I know, I know it's, a, it's a, <laughs> trying to trying to summarize an entire life story into a, into a few minute answer will be hard. I understand. Right. I wrote two books about it. You know, I wrote Out of the Gobi. That was my first book. Now I wrote Money Games. And that was the second book. And we're talking about my third book, Money Machine. Well, simply put, I grew up, grew up in China and my school was interrupted or disrupted when I, my schooling was disrupted when I finished elementary school, when the Cultural Revolution in China broke out. So for the next 10 years, I was out of school and I never received secondary education at all because I was not in school for 10 years. Instead, I was sent to China's Gobi Desert to be a hard laborer where I worked for many years, as I detailed in my book. And it was a time of great chaos in China. And the Cultural Revolution eventually was brought to an end when Mao died in 1976. And in 1979, China normalized diplomatic relationship with the United States. Deng Xiaoping came to power and he started economic reforms, and that is market reforms, pushing China in the direction of a market economy and open door policy, establishing relationship with the United States and many other countries. And it was in 1980s, I went to America 
to study first as a visiting scholar, and then eventually I got my PhD at UC Berkeley. I spent a number of years as a professor at the Wharton School before I came to Hong Kong to join JP Morgan in its investment banking business. And then in the middle of Asian financial crisis of 1997, I decided to leave investment banking to get into private equity. That was Newbridge Capital. And that was the journey that I took. And then, and then your second book, Money Games, um, deals with Newbridge taking over Korea First Bank. I believe I got that name right. How did that experience help prepare you for the experience of taking over Shenzhen Development Bank? My experiences, even in the Gopi, and my experiences working with Newbridge Capital TBG to acquire what used to be the largest commercial bank in Korea, and that is Korea First Bank, all have some relevance to our eventual acquisition of control of national bank in China. See, when I was working in the Gobi, during the Cultural Revolution, before China opened up, all economic activities in China were controlled by the state. It was a system called centrally planned system. There was not a market economy, right? And now people talk about China's development model and industrial policy and all that as if state control of economic activities is a panacea or some magic to push the economy to grow. In fact, China grew in the past 40 some odd years by abandoning the old state control system and by embracing a market economy, which is really capitalism. So without that change, we as American investors, as a private equity firm based in the United States, San Francisco specifically, we would not have been able to, or we would not have been allowed to buy control of national bank in China. So that's the relevance of kind of my first uh, experience in the Gobi Desert and what we did later on to buy control of a bank in China. China's banking system, when we first look at this bank in 2002, was very broken. How broken? Well, in that year, 2002, when we first began to look at the possibility to buy control of this troubled institution, Shenzhen Development Bank, the central bank, which is called People's Bank of China, PBOC, estimated that the non-performing loan ratio, that is bad loan ratio, in the entire China's banking system was about 30%. Now, just to put that into perspective, international requirement, regulatory requirement for capital ratio of a bank is 8% of its assets. So if 30% of your asset is bad, that means your bank is technically insolvent many times over, assuming large part of the 30% bad loan ratio will have bad loans will have to be written off. So Chinese banking system at that time was very weak. 
because of years of lending to customers or businesses which were not in the position to pay back the loans. Standard and Poor S&P is an American and international credit rating agency. They estimated in 2002 that the total amount of bad loans in the Chinese banking system was about half trillion dollars. Now, again, to put that into perspective, Chinese GDP in that year was 1.1 trillion US dollars, and that is bad loan amount was about the same as half of the GDP of the country. And SP further estimated that it would take anywhere between 10 to 20 years, between 10 and 20 years, to bring that bad loan ratio down from 30% to 5%. Now, if their estimate had come true, we were just got to this point, the 5% bad loan ratio, which is still considered to be very high by international standard. And the truth is that in about five years, the Chinese banking system was completely restructured and became relatively healthy, so healthy that in 2008, the so-called, in the so-called global financial crisis, which failed financial giants like Lehman Brothers, Washington Mutual and the like, and the European banks as well, all the Chinese banks were not much affected at all. But because the banking system in 2002 was so weak and China decided to restructure and reform its banking system, that opened up the opportunity for us as American firm to look at the possibility to buy a troubled financial institution in China. And if we didn't have the experience of having acquired Korea First Bank in Korea back during the Asian financial crisis, we wouldn't have been allowed to buy control of a Chinese bank uh, because in the United States, the regulation is such that non-bank institutions cannot buy control of a commercial bank. Similar regulation exists in China so that a private equity firm typically is not allowed to buy control of a commercial bank. But it was the circumstances of that time, a weak banking system, a troubled financial institution, coupled with our experience of having turned around a troubled bank in Korea, made it possible for us to look at the possibility, first possibility, and later it became a reality to buy control of a Chinese national bank. So... I mean, when you're trying to take over the bank and then when you do take over the bank and you're trying to reform it, you have to deal with all these different government officials, all these different regulators, um, which sometimes gets very complicated, it seems. You have officials uh, say that they've never seen certain documents and are shocked when you give when you deliver the actual documents and agreements to them. Regulators tell one regulator tells you one thing, another regulator tells you a different thing. What was it like kind of trying to get this deal through and trying to reform the bank in the Chinese regulatory system? Well, it's very difficult to answer that question because as you point out, it's very complicated. There are many 
decision makers. And as typical in a complex transaction like this, and we had similar experiences in Korea when we were taking over the control of Korea First Bank, that it doesn't really matter how much support that you have from different regulators. It really matters if one reg regulator doesn't want you to do the deal and stands in the way of approving a transaction. So there are numerous regulators and there were government agencies, both at the central government level and local government level. And you have to make sure that everybody is okay for the deal. See, government agencies and regulators don't want to fight with each other. So they may like your proposal, they may want to approve the deal, but they are unlikely to fight on your behalf with another regulator. And that's why you have to bring everybody on board. And that was a difficult process almost anywhere if you will have to negotiate with the government. We negotiated with the government in Korea and we negotiated with a government in China. When I say a government, mostly with the local government, not with the central government. Whereas in Korea, we were negotiating with the central government. So I, I don't want to get into too many details about all the changes you did at the Shenzhen Development Bank. But I did want to focus on one thing in particular, which is uh, Frank Newman, who uh, you invite to be interim CEO of the bank. And then he loves the job so much that he sticks around for, for the whole period. Um you know, he seems to have no trouble running a Chinese bank, I think, despite not speaking very much Mandarin. What was it about uh, Newman that made him such a good CEO for SDB? In fact, he didn't speak Chinese at all. <laughs> uh, Frank Newman was Deputy Treasury Secretary of the United States. The Treasury Secretary, when he was Deputy, was Lloyd Benson, and it was during the Bill Clinton administration. Prior to that, he was a CFO of Bank of America. And after that, after retiring from the position of the Treasury, he became chairman and CEO of Bankers Trust, which eventually he sold to Deutsche Bank. So he was a very experienced banker. He was, I was talking about at that particular time, of course, he remains a very experienced banker. When we took over control of Korea First Bank in 2000, we invited him to be on the board as the independent director of Korea First Bank because we wanted to tap into his experiences and knowledge of not only running a bank, but restructuring and fixing a troubled bank as Banker Trust was at one time, as Bank of America was at one time. So he worked with us for a number of years on the board of Korea First Bank. And when we took over the control of Shenzhen Development Bank in China, we also invited him to be a director of the board, again, to help us 
at the board level with his experiences and knowledge. And then in 2005, and there was a need for us to replace the CEO. We appointed a new CEO as we took over the bank on the first working day of 2005. But that CEO knew how to manage a good bank, but not a bad bank. And this bank was very broken, very troubled. And we needed somebody with experience of turning around a troubled institution. And it was a big deal to change a bank's CEO. And it required regulatory approval at the highest level in any country especially in China, for the first time, anybody appointed a foreigner to be the CEO of a nationwide bank. So we had to find somebody that we knew could do the job because if we repeatedly go back to the regulators to re replace the CEO, we would lose credibility and regulators would have great trouble with us. So we wanted a known factor, somebody we could trust. And that's why we turned to Frank Newman, who we have known, we had known by that time extremely well. And he didn't speak any Chinese. We were more concerned about finding somebody who knew banking as opposed to Chinese language or Chinese culture. And we thought, that uh, you know, we could help him with uh, uh, translators uh, since he didn't speak the language. In fact, David Wonderman, the founder and chairman of TBG and co-chairman of Newbridge Capital, quipped at that time that there's some advantage that Frank doesn't speak Chinese because nobody would ask him for favors. So that's how we... Uh, asked him to serve as chairman and CEO of the bank, initially as a stopgap measure, because we were concerned whether or not he was waiting to relocate from New York City all the way to Shenzhen of China, which is adjacent to Hong Kong. And he agreed to serve as interim CEO before we found a permanent one. But eventually, he did such a great job, and he loved the job so much that eventually he just stayed, as you said, throughout our holding period for that bank. So there hasn't been, I think, another foreign owner of a Chinese bank since um, Newbridge exited Shenzhen Development Bank. What does that kind of say about China's continued reforms of its financial sector or its economy? Um, has, have the reforms slowed down? Or is the fact that there hasn't been another foreign owner of a Chinese bank just showing that China's continuing to, I guess, to mature? I, I guess, what, what's your sense of, of continued market reforms in China? Um, it's not true that uh, there was no foreign ownership of Chinese banks. There's foreign ownership of Chinese banks up to today. See, at that time, Citibank also bought 20% of Guangdong Development Bank, as you probably remember. 
but there were five 20% shareholders and Citibank was only one of them. But Citibank was given the contractual right to manage that particular bank. So that's one example. In our particular case, it was not the contract. It was the fact that we owned more shares of that Shenzhen Development Bank than anybody else by far. And therefore we had control. So it was different. We had effective control without having to have a contract with anyone, whereas Citibank contracted with four other shareholders to manage Guangdong Development Bank. The other day I was talking with the Asia CEO of Standard Charter Bank. They are a major shareholder of Bohai Bank located in northern part of China. I think that China went through the banking reform in the early part of 2000, basically between 2002 and let's say 2006 or seven. By that time, the restructuring was more or less complete. As you may remember, four largest state-owned banks all formed their designated asset management companies or what we call uh, AMCs, which we call bad banks. And these banks carved out their bad loans and pushed them into AMCs financed by the Ministry of Finance. So by the middle of 2000 uh, or around 2005, all the major banks were cleaned up of their NPLs and got rid of their bad loans. And the question was, how do you prevent bad loans from being created again? You know, you could clean it up at one time. How do you make sure that you would remain clean in the future? So the regulators made the requirement that every Chinese bank would have to bring in a foreign investor. So CCB, China Construction Bank, brought in Bank of America. Bank of China brought in RBS from Europe. And Industrial and Commercial Bank of China brought in Goldman Sachs as a major shareholder. China didn't necessarily require the capital from foreign investors. Unlike Korea, during the Asian financial crisis, when Korea was running out of capital, had to be rescued by International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, China was capital glut. You know, China's economic growth was very much driven and even still is today very much driven by fixed asset investments representing about 45 to 50% of GDP because China uniquely has the highest savings rate in the world. So at the time, China could carve out all the bad loans and put them into EMCs all financed by the Ministry of Finance. So they have the capital. The reason that China wanted, the regulators in China wanted 
foreign investors into all the Chinese banks is because they thought foreign investors will be able to bring in knowledge, international best practices, and experiences, risk management systems, so that all these companies will be fundamentally reformed so that they will not create a lot of bad loans going forward. We were unique only in the sense that we were able to control a national bank. We were not unique as a foreign investor in the Chinese bank. All the Chinese banks got foreign investments. So by the middle or latter part of the first decade of 2000, the banking reform was largely completed. And today, I would say the Chinese banking system is rather healthy. And this was tested in 2008 during the so-called global financial crisis. When I say so-called, because that crisis affected the United States, started in the United States with the collapse of Lehman Brothers, severely affected Europe, but it didn't really touch Asia at all. And all the Chinese banks remained resilient and healthy during that period of time. So today, there are no such opportunities as we saw at that time. And today, honestly, if you ask me to buy control of another bank anywhere in the world, I wouldn't want to do it because the regulatory regime of banking has changed so much after 2008 that it has become too expensive to operate the bank. The capital ratio requirement is much higher. The reserve ratio required of banks is much higher. The costs of compliance you know, with all kinds of regulations are very high. So it's just too expensive to operate a bank. And therefore, it's difficult for private equity to make money from investing in banks today. So I want to end with a question on private equity and kind of how private equity is seen today. You know, I think in, in a lot of the popular discourse, um, it, private equity gets blamed for it gets blamed for layoffs. It gets blamed for aggressive cost cutting. It gets blamed at times for lower returns. Um, when a private company takes over um, a struggling company, um, surprise bankruptcies after private equity takes over companies. Um, you know, given given that 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 two of your books kind of deal with very successful instances of of a private equity improving a company and leading to a successful exit. Um, I mean, how do you see private equity today? And you can talk specifically in in the U.S. or in Asia. Um, has the industry changed or perhaps are people giving private equity too much of a bad name? It's very difficult to generalize. Mm. And not everybody plays by the same rules. It's a market economy. And some investors are much more speculative, opportunistic, and short-term. And some private equity investors are much more long-term and much more focused on creating value. You have to keep in mind, with or without private equity, companies are created, companies go bankrupt from time to time. 
And sometimes a private equity firm takes over control of company. Let's say if it's a trouble company, then what do you expect the investor to do? Obviously, you want to improve the operation of the company and very often involves, for example, divesting from non-core businesses, cutting the fats, and making it leaner and more efficient, and some vested interests will be hurt. And I think that in some cases, if an investor is very short-term focused, then it may do things that don't reflect long-term interest of the institution of the firm, and that is the target company and all its stakeholders. But by and large, I would say private equity has played a very positive role in making the economy much more efficient in creating value for not only investors, but for all stakeholders in improving market efficiency. I was asked this question just a few weeks ago by a Chinese publication asking me whether or not private equity investors or private equity as industry creates value at all. <laughs> because from her point of view, it's just putting money in, getting money out. How do you create value? And I uh, turned the question around to her. I said, well, by your logic, money itself doesn't create any value. Currencies don't create any value. Market doesn't create any value. Commerce doesn't create any value. Does that make sense? In the market economy, we know if there's no market, like in the centrally planned economy in China, when I was in the Gobi, well, the economy was running to the ground. And China at that time, in the 1970s and before, when all economic activities were controlled by the state, was not producing prosperity, it was producing poverty. In fact, dire poverty. And the market economy saved China and money, market, and commerce make the economy much more efficient because it allows efficient allocation of resources. Economists study two types of efficiencies in the economic system. One is productive efficiency. You know, if per man you can produce more gadgets, uh, you're more efficient than the other system. And the other type of efficiency that economists focus on is allocative efficiency. Whether or not you can allocate resources to the most productive enterprises, businesses, and so forth. So private equity plays a role in improving the allocative efficiency of the economy of a market. So by and large, it plays a very positive role. Today in the United States, there are twice as many firms controlled by private equity as listed on public market. That shows how big this industry has got. That shows to what extent that this industry affects the economy. And by and large, I think the 
effect on the economy is very positive. So I think that's a great place to end our conversation with Wei Jin Shan, author of Money Machine, A Trailblazing American Venture in China. Um, Shan, I actually have two final questions for you, which are, uh, where can people find your work? And what's next for you? What might the next project be? And I'm asking specifically on the writing side. I'm not asking about what's next for you and NPAG. Um, but what might be next for you as, a, as, a, as someone who's now written three books? Well, first of all, to answer your first question, all my three books are available on Amazon and all the major outlets. And my publisher has recently published paperback versions of my first two books as well. They are available in print, in hardcover, paperback. The third book is not available in paperback uh, as yet. But for the first two books, we have it in print, in hardcover, paperback, Kindle, and audio. And for the third book, I'm sure the paperback and audio will come as well. To answer your second question, I don't have plans to write any more books at the moment. Thank you so very much, Nicholas. It's a great pleasure talking with you. Thank you for coming on the show. Um, you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewOfBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find many more author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. This podcast is on all your favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us interviewing those uh, writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us for a conversation with Amitav Acharya, author of Tragic Nation Burma, Why and How Democracy Failed. But again, Shan, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you very much.